To the Hebrews, something interesting about the word or the name Hebrew. The first time you see it used is in Genesis 14, where Abram in verse 13 is actually referred to as Abram the Hebrew. And it's because a messenger has come from a group of pagan kings that Abram is aligning with to go fight a war to liberate his, son, his nephew, Lot. But this word Hebrew comes out of nowhere. <clears throat> it's not used before this, it's used then. And it's ironic that it's used for Abram because it's his children that will end up becoming these Hebrews. But apparently, other people already referred to Abram and his uh, family and his servants and everything that he owns as Hebrews. But we don't know where it came from. We have no origin. Dr. Robert Alter, uh, in his commentary on the Torah, says, only here he is given the designation. Although scholars have argued whether Hebrew is an ethnic or social term, or even the name for a warrior class, it's clear that it's invoked only in contexts when Abraham and his descendants stand in relation to other members of national groups. It's how other people refer to him. And every time that, say, Abram or one of his descendants refer to themselves as Hebrews, it's always in speaking to other people of other groups, in relation to others. So Abram, you have to remember, owns no land. He is not a nation. The gods of the humans reward other peoples with land and property. And they turn their, various, their property into various kingdoms and fiefdoms and empires even. But God seems to favor these Hebrew strangers. These strangers in a strange land. These aliens these immigrants. Hebrews used to, uh, quite, he, they used to quite often point out to, Hebrews is used to point out their otherliness. Others would taunt them, the Hebrews, us and them, if you will. It's their otherliness that it points out. Their alien status. Potiphar's wife rails at her husband, this Hebrew you brought here to disrupt this. Joseph uses it himself in speaking to the Egyptians. I myself was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. He wants the Egyptians to know where he came from. Pharaoh, his daughter, the midwives, all refer to them as the Hebrews. Moses will refer to the God of the Hebrews every time he walks into Pharaoh. I've spoken to the God of the Hebrews and he says, let my people go. Move ahead a little bit. It's not used often. It's, it's used less often the further away you get from the Exodus. King Saul um, uh, blows a trumpet in the hearing of the Philistines. And they, since they can hear him, he says, here is the message to the Hebrews. Saul's letting them know that they're about to go up against a ragtag army, if you will, of others. But we have a God. The king of the Philistines, Achish, makes a case for allowing David to join them. But when he enters into the, the crowd, if you will, the people that are there, he says, what are these Hebrews doing here? And then he even refers to Saul as the king of Israel. And the last time that it's used, the very last time that it's used, is in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah reminds Israel that when you have a Hebrew slave, you let him go when it's time. That they are liberated Every seven years, you let them go when they're time. So I can't help but notice that every time this is brought up and brought up most of the time, it's in reference to slavery. It's in reference to this servitude. 
And whenever God wants to remind them who they are, remember, he says, you were once slaves in Egypt. But I released you with a mighty arm and a strong hand, if you will. And it's because of that we love and follow our God. So in chapter one of Hebrews, I guess what I, what I was getting at is that that's why the author addresses them as Hebrews. What does, he want, what does he want to remind them of? He doesn't address them as Judean. He doesn't address them as Israelite. He addresses them as Hebrews. What are they supposed to be reminded of when they hear the term Hebrew? So in chapter one of, of Hebrews, if you will, we're reminded that all through time, God has spoken through two ways, at least two ways. It said many in various ways, but then he points out two of them. One was with the prophets, right? He spoke to us through prophets, which are human messengers, if you will, and then there's not so human messengers. He spoke to us also through who? Through angels, he said. But the ultimate revelation, according to Hebrews, is his what? His son. Today he has spoken to us through his son. The only one that knows the answer is the one that wasn't here last week. Come on, guys. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Where he concluded in his discussion about the angels, why aren't angels sufficient to carry God's message? Why aren't angels sufficient to be the ultimate revelation of God? Is at the very end in talking about what these angels are and who they are. You know, their appearance, uh, their seeming supernatural power, everything else. He ends the chapter by saying, are not all angels spirits in the divine what? In the divine service. He said, angels may be something that you think is divine. And they do, they do come from God. And they, they have appearances that frighten us and they have supernatural powers. They do come from God. They are very revelatory. He said, but when it all comes down to it, they're no more or less servants than the prophets were. God's servants. Sent to serve who? Not to serve other angels, but to serve those who what? Inherit salvation. Prophets bring messages. Prophets bring information. We could grasp prophets being lower than angels. We could grasp prophets being servants, even slaves, if you will. But angels? You're going to tell an angel that he has to serve me? I won't, but God did. They're here to serve us, servitude, slaves. Therefore, today, because of that, he says, therefore, if angels have been sent to the people who are to inherit salvation, therefore, we must what? We must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through angels was valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, we'll move on with that. I just wanted to read it while it was up there. But first he says, pay greater what? Pay greater attention. Reminder about these heavenly messengers. The danger of drifting away and attributing something to this heavenly messengers that we didn't. I still am fascinated by this. The last two weeks I've been looking at this. I've still been asking the question, what must these first century believers have believed about angels? And then it kind of hit me this week. What is it that they may be doing with angels that they should not be doing? They're worshiping them, that's right. They believe their divinity and their power and, and, and their fearful appearance, no matter what it is, they're attributing something to them that shouldn't be. They are worshiping them. And I remember, it was Nellie. Nellie reminded me that wasn't it John who tried to worship the angel in Revelation and what was the angel's reply? Don't worship me. He said, I'm just a servant like you are. 
They've gotten caught up with what angels are and they forget what they are not. Which brings to this this strange phrase at the end then, all sin receiving a just penalty. In other words, there has been a message proclaimed through angels and it was valid, but it contains the message that all sin or transgression or disobedience receives a just penalty. What is the penalty for sin, by the way? Death. No matter what it looked like, no matter how majestic it looked, no matter how fearful the, the uh, worshipers became, it still contained a message of death. There's nothing else in it. Prophets had the same message. Quit sinning or what? Or you'll die. If you think about it, that's all we had. That's all we had. That's all we chose to have, if you will. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So mankind wanders away from God and our message becomes, well, the solution must be, I gotta quit sinning. If I don't quit sinning, I'm gonna what? I'm gonna die. That's a message of death. The author of Hebrews is saying that even if it's in the mouth of an angel, it's still the message of death. Because it doesn't contain what? It doesn't contain the hope. It doesn't contain the Son. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made what? When he made purification for sin, remember the angels say every sin has its penalty. He comes and he makes purification to make sure that the sinner at least has the opportunity to not have it be death. And when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's exact nature, his radiance, his power. It may, we may get a glimpse of it in angels, but if it's an angel without the sun, it's still a message of death. There's nothing more to it. And then also what makes Jesus, what makes the sun his exact radiance and power was that he was willing to make purification for sin. Remember I pointed out that that was the, I guess the, the bomb that Jesus dropped on his disciples in the last five chapters of John when he says, I, I, I don't need to go ask the Father for you. The Father himself loves you and he's always loved you. So Jesus coming to make purification for sin is that exact love, radiance, and glory. Even if sometimes it doesn't really appear that God is real thrilled with these children of Abram. With these Hebrews, if you will. See, angels have light and radiance on their own, but they don't carry the gospel. They do not carry the gospel. I know, I know, you're all thinking of the three angels' message. We'll talk about that. I think we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews 8, I think, okay? So just hang in there. All right. But remember this that the angels in Revelation 14 with the three, those three angels having the message, the message has to be to people, to men, to women. And it's from the Son of Man that they carry this. It isn't the angel that goes to proclaim. It's us. Right? He didn't leave it to the three angels. He could, couldn't he? But what would we have done with that message? We don't relate. We don't relate to angels. Having two angels stand right in Mary's face to tell her the truth that Jesus had been resurrected, it makes no impact on her whatsoever. Why? She doesn't relate to them. They're angels. Our, our question to angels would be the same question that Job has to God. What do you know about me? What part do I have in you? 
hence the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Son of Man. He's the Son of all humanity. He's humanity's God. He's ours. Human channeled, couched, and completely enveloped in human flesh, coming to human eyewitnesses. And that's what the author says. The author says, then how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He just didn't want us saved. And he wasn't satisfied with just sending the message out through anybody else, through angels or prophets. He came himself, and the word became flesh and walked among us. How can we escape? How can we neglect, he said, such a great salvation? It was declared first through the Lord, and it was attested to who? To us, by those who heard him. Message wasn't heard until the Son of Man showed up. Mankind listens to the Son of Man. At least gives him a shot, at least gives him an opportunity. With angels, we're lucky to even hear a word come out of their mouth because the second we see him, we're running away. And the first words they have to say is, Fear not. Us who heard him. All this comes together. After an, not after an angel proclaims, but when the son proclaims it. And we can hear it. We don't speak angel. We are not angels. They have a testimony, but it isn't ours. Test, angels have testimony for other angels. I'm not privy to it. I haven't heard an angel witness to another angel. I'm sure it happens. I'm sure it takes place. But I don't have part in it. I don't recognize them. They're not part of my experience. They're not part of our experience. And an angel will readily admit that. When an angel shows up, he just, they just say what God has told them to say. And even now, our guardian angels, they can't make themselves seen or known. They can act, amen? And I'm glad they do. But it's, uh, how do I put it? It's from a distance, isn't it? Like I said, I said last week, and it's a dangerous question to ask. Do you have a walking, talking relationship with your guardian angel? What's he like? What's her like? What's it like? What are they like? What do they do? See what I'm getting at? That's as far as they can go. Angels have angel testimony. The Son of Man has human testimony. He's one of us. And we are one of him. Father, if I have one desire for these, these folks, for these children, for these Hebrews, these servants of Abraham, if I've got one desire for them, it's that they be one. As you and I are one, I want them to be one with me and with you. Me and you and you and me and me and them. Man. And the only reason he can ask for that and an angel can't is because he is human. So the signs and the wonders are even more wondrous coming from Jesus. Think about it. If all the miracles that Jesus had performed had been performed by an angel, would we be impressed? No. Because that's what angels do, don't they? Up until this time, angels speak and stuff happens, right? Firstborn of Egypt die. Sodom and Gomorrah get rained on by, by, by brimstone, right? Angels speak and stuff happens. If he shows up, if an angel shows up, and calms the winds of Galilee, uh, produces bread out of nowhere. In fact, an angel can show up with manna. An angel could show up and feed us for 40 years. We were eating the food of angels, Moses said. Right? So if an angel shows up and does what Jesus does, it would impress us none at all. But what was impressive was that a man did it. Even his own disciples said, who is this man 
that the winds obey him. If an angel does it, I go home and I say, baby, an angel calmed the winds on the sea today. We were in a horrible storm. She says, oh, big deal. Angel did it. That's what angels do, right? And if so, then it also would have continued to cement this further gap between God and mankind. I look at that kind of power and I look at that kind of majesty and I begin to tremble because I move farther and farther away from what he wanted. I become like the children of Israel who focus on nothing but the earthquake and the fire and the rumbling of the mountain and I'm not hearing the trumpet anymore. So this gap created at the fall and at Sinai would just continue to grow if he gave the message to only angels. Because we would then further, further say, David's question would be a lot different, wouldn't it, Arlene? Who is man that you are so thoughtful of us? If angels come and keep doing, uh, uh, delivering the message and doing all of that, that question takes on a whole, whole different meaning. It becomes more hopeless, doesn't it? So how, now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. God can leave his message of reconciliation in the hands of angels. He can't do it because creation was for humans. He leaves it to humans. But notice, it isn't the world who will not be subject to angels, this world, but the coming world is what he says. Sorry, I didn't have the slide up there. But he said, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to who? To angels. This world as falling apart as it is, it was still given to us. And who's still in charge of it? We are. Should we be? Probably not, right? But we are, amen? amen. And in the coming world, though, in the coming world, he said, I'm not going to leave it to angels. Who's he going to leave it to? Almost. He's going to leave it to a man, right? But the world, like I said, it was created for us. I mean, you know, uh, even after we handed it over to Satan, even after Adam and Eve said, here, okay, you, you can have it. Satan tried to show up as the representative of earth with the sons of God one time. And God looked at him and he said, where did you come from? I came from the earth. I own it now. I roam it from here to there. God said, really? Hmm. I, I, I'm not sure that you know anything about my servant Job. Not an angel in charge now, but who? A man. I created it for them. Now, whatever they've done, they still got it. I don't know what you're doing here, trying to represent them. An angel, by the way. This world is chaotic and dying. It's ruled by a perversion of the humanity we were created to be. If we can sum up the fall in one word, in, in one uh, statement, if you will, that is, we perverted the humanity we were created with. We were born into a world to not be in it for us. We were born into a world where we would love God and love others and serve them first and foremost. We perverted that. So when it comes to the coming kingdom, the one made right, who will he subject to? Not to angels, not to angels, but he says, he says, God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God did not subject the coming world, which we're speaking of to angels. God, but someone has testified somewhere, we are human beings, who are human beings, that we are mindful of them, or mortals, that you take care of them. Wait, what? Humans? You're going to leave it to humans? They get the kingdom? 
You made them for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. Hold on. Even though we're lower than angels, we get the kingdom? Seemingly lower than angels, yet we're still crowned with what? With glory and with honor. But you see, I jumped the gun. Grady and I did. It isn't us. It's not our ruination of humanity that will get the kingdom, but what? Who? It is what and who we were created to be. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjecting to them. We don't get it, do we? We don't see it. Like I said, he says that the earth is still subjective to us. We don't quite see it. We don't even understand what, we're, what, we're, what has been given to us, what is subject to us. We don't quite understand all of that. We can't even imagine it. But there is someone who does see, and there is someone we can see. But we see Jesus. Who for a little while, guess what? Just like us, was made what? Lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Who else was crowned with glory and honor? We were. Why? Because he was. We're sons of God and sons of man because he is son of man and son of God. And why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, it's what we can't see. The kingdom here has ruined us. It's, it's the subjection we can't see. Why? Because we're still subject to it, aren't we? Still subject to death. First death, hopefully not second death, but death still reigns here. Death's still in charge. Death still holds people captive. Death still makes them slaves. So we can't see. We can't see it. So what do we need? We need the Son of Man to do something about it. And when he does, when he tastes death for everyone, guess what? No longer slaves. Now we can see what is subject to us. And what is subject to us then is not this kingdom, but this kingdom made right. This kingdom forever. He may taste death for everyone. Now we're talking about mankind. Now we're talking about those who, who God puts in subjection under our feet. We're talking humanity. We're talking real humanity. We are talking the son of man. We do see Jesus. See, an angel has only the message it carries, information and nothing else. When they're done talking, when they're done with the accompanying signs and wonders that they perform, it enlists only fear in humans. We get no solution. When they go away, we're still slaves to the fear of death because the angel can't do anything for us. An angel can't even volunteer to die. If an, angel, if an angel's death could atone, we would look and say, what's, what's that to us? We have no part in that. But the glory and the honor of the Son of Man, it's made him king of kings, is that he was willing to suffer and die and be the grace of God, to taste death for all humanity. Only the son of humanity can be, can be, can be, used to be, and will forever be. And only he can die and atone for humanity. Why? Because he's human. It was fitting that God for whom and through all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation, what? Perfect through sufferings. He's perfect through what? He's perfect through sufferings. See, we can't even get past this verse 
and come through it without some sort of fight happening, without some sort of argument or debate happening. We begin to immediately then start talking about when did this perfection occur? Was he always perfect or was he only perfect after he suffered? By the way, the oldest heresy, the oldest argument in the Christian church is the nature of Christ. We've been arguing about it for 2,000 years. And it's gotten us where? It's gotten us nowhere. We argued for centuries about what the degree of suffering was. What, was it the actual physical torture? Was he perfect before the suffering? And we missed completely the point. It's not the suffering, it's why he suffered. He did it for us. Amen. That's what makes him perfect. Which means, yes, he was perfect before he suffered, he was perfect during he suffered, and he's even more perfect after he suffered because the Father can look at him and say, you tasted death for everyone. Therefore, everyone is welcome to come on in. We can't achieve one iota of perfection or, sac or sanctification because we're always looking to boast about it. He did it because he, we couldn't. And because we couldn't, he loved us. And it didn't matter whether we could or not. But what mattered was that we know that we couldn't. And he did it simply because he loved us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. It's not the suffering process. It's the bringing of the children to glory. That's, that's what makes him perfect. He's always been perfection, and his perfection then brings us to glory. You want to be perfect? Be perfect in him, because it's the only perfection we will ever achieve. By the way, on this side of the second coming, and on that side of the second coming. We think we get to the kingdom and we're going to be boasting about our own perfection? Well, in case we do, he'll be walking right there in front of us to remind us. Oh, really? Come on, Greg, let's go have a talk. For the one who sanctifies, the one who makes holy, and those who are what? So there is one that what? Sanctifies or makes holy or makes perfect. There is one. And for everyone else, there you are only sanctified. If he sanctifies, we're sanctified. And we all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. There's only one who makes holy. And when he does, all of us can become holy, or are holy. Are is what it says. Sanctifies, sanctified. And the reason that he sanctifies is because it's an ongoing process, isn't it? How many have been made holy enough today that Jesus can take the rest of the day off with you? Wait a minute, it's Sabbath. Shouldn't we let him take the day off? Man, if he did... So how does a Hebrew know? How does a Hebrew know this? Because it's been attested to and looked forward to by those prophets already spoken of. So the author of Hebrews will always go back to the Hebrews' experience. And what is their experience with God? Mostly, primarily, through his what? Through his word. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will what? I will praise you. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. We are those brothers and sisters. The son of man places his hand on us both. You know, the, the whole argument that Job had, friends accusing him of sin, it must be one whopper of a sin that you've got on your heart, Job. God wouldn't do this to just anybody. Man, oh man, I don't know what it is. I'd sure like to hear it, though. I'd sure like you to tell me. Come on. And Job just goes, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And the whole time, all Job wants to do is to talk to God. That's it. He says, that's all I want to do. I want to make my case. I want to see him, and I want to make my case. And his friends argue with him. Well, you can't. Look at you. You're a sinner. You expect to be able to go in and argue your case before God? See, in the whole argument, too, as to whether or not God is doing this to him or allowing it to happen, it doesn't matter, at least in, the, in Job's narrative, because Job believes that God is actually doing it to him. So why are we arguing about, you know, I mean, Job really believes that he's doing it. I believe God's doing it. I believe that I would like to talk to him. I just want to know why. And in this huge plea and probably the oldest narrative, the the oldest story, long before there was any Abram, maybe just right after the flood, Job uh, knows nothing of Hebrews or Israelites or Abraham or anything. He pleased the, the, the case of lost humanity. He pleased the case that I'm not hearing what I want to hear. I'm not hearing what I can hear. All I'm getting is this, and I don't know what happened. And he makes this plea. He says, I wish there was someone who could lay a hand on us both. I wish there was somebody who understood you, who also understands me, who could talk to me. the oldest plea in the Bible, and it's for Jesus. It's for a son of man who can understand him. Because maybe God is doing this to me because he does not know what this feels like. And ever since the son came and tasted death for everyone, the answer can be, I know exactly what you feel like and more. And I love you. Just hold on. We are his brothers and sisters because the Son of Man places his hand on us both. Therefore then, since therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and that is the devil. What makes us human, our flesh and blood, our being. So if we, at the very least, at the tiniest bit, at the very least, no matter who it is, no matter who we come across, no matter who is placed in our path, if we could at least, at least agree that we're both human. You ever met anybody in your life who you had the slightest doubt or suspicion that they were human? If we could at least agree on that, then we could begin the walk of saying, that's what binds us together. And if we're bound together with each other because of our humanity, then we, don't, we no longer have to leave God out and leave him in a realm to where he doesn't walk in that realm. I'm not ashamed to be called brothers and sisters, he said. Why? Because he now walks in our humanity. So I'm just saying, If it sounds too out there to believe that God would become a human, that he would become a man, well, what he's saying here is, if you can believe that we're fellow humans, (laughs) then piece of cake, you can believe that he's a fellow human too. And the death to his flesh, though. See, my flesh is gonna die. I thank God that it is. I've had it with this. Haven't you? Some of us more than others because we've had longer who have had it with this. I've had it with this, with this body. I don't want to see any part of it. If I get to the kingdom and I resemble one iota what I look like right now, I'm I'm going to have a, (laughs) wait a minute. Uh, if I'm wearing glasses in the kingdom, that's okay. I just I wore glasses since I was in the sixth grade. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll wear them, okay. But it's up to him, isn't it? And no matter what it is, it's never gonna age. It's never gonna suffer. Because all the suffering was done. 
and the power has been broken. And his death destroys the power of death. Like I said, my, my flesh is gonna die. And hopefully to be laid in the ground and to decompose so farther away from the time that he comes that I don't even want that dust near my recreation. But my death won't mean anything for anybody else. He can't do anything for anybody else. As a matter of fact, you know, within a couple of generations, no one will even know that I existed. His death, though, look what it did. That finally, this 6,000 to 10,000 year old curse of being slaves to death has been absolutely broken and taken care of. We don't have to fear it anymore. There isn't anybody that can use the power or the threat or the coercion of death over you anymore if you believe in the Son of Man. He's got nothing on you anymore. So we're back to this familiar theme from where we started. Free those who who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. We were always held by slavery to the fear of death. Our whole earthly economy and governments has been ruled by it. The first time that someone found out that they could cause fear in somebody else if they were just stronger than they were and threatened them with something, that's how long we've been under this rule. In fact, if they were strong enough, they then would be tempted to say, you know what, worship me or what? Or die. By the time the Bible's written, we've got all kinds of rulers asking that of these poor slaves. And no one knows that better than who? For it's clear that the, he, he did not come to help angels, but what? The descendants of Abraham. Who knows this any better than they do? Who knows this any better than the, descend, than the descendants of Abraham? No one knows it better than them. They are the Hebrews. Their name has slavery mixed into it. So it's wonderful that the author of the Hebrews wants to make sure that the ears of these children of Abraham understand who this son of man really is. So he writes this this letter all completely couched, if you will, in their language, in their flesh, in their experience. I don't want you missing whoever he is, whoever they are, they love his fellow children of Abraham. And he says, I don't want you missing anything. I don't want you to neglect one word of it. How can we neglect such a great salvation? He'll talk about the cloud of witnesses that came before too. So they were told for a great deal of their existence that they were slaves, they were Hebrews. See, I told you the word Hebrews uh, was in the mouths of the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the Pharaoh that knows not Joseph and the midwives. It's real interesting is that at the beginning of the Exodus, before we even mention the Pharaoh that know, doesn't know Joseph anymore, it says that these, it has a quick genealogy of Israel all the way up to Joseph. And it says these sons of Jacob, these, these sons of Israel, if you will, began to multiply. They began to multiply and, and they got to a great number. As a matter of fact, it's the same word. Moses uses the same word that you do back in chapter eight of Genesis when all of the creatures begin to multiply on the earth, literally to swarm, if you will. So when Pharaoh uses the word Hebrews, he looks at them and he literally sees a swarm. But note that the swarm in Genesis eight is not people. The swarm is creatures. Swarming, crawling, creeping creatures. So Pharaoh calls the midwives together and he says, this is what I want you to do. When you're helping the Hebrew women, Hebrew, when you're helping the Hebrew women give birth, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. I want you to just throw it into the river. And the, and the, uh, 
the midwives have an interesting reply. They say, we don't get there in time. What she's really saying is, the Hebrew women don't call us. The Hebrew women don't need our help. The Hebrew women breed like animals. Because animals are the only ones that don't need help in birth. Swarming, crawling, creeping. Now listen to Pharaoh's voice again. Those Hebrews. I'm beginning to wonder if the word Hebrews is a slur about another people and about slavery. See, if you can convince people through deception or fear or coercion that another group of people are not really people, then you can do just about anything you want, can't you? And that's what slavery does. It completely dehumanizes. That's what's, that's what's uh, unreal, I guess, or too real. Too, re- too real, too this earth for this. Is that slavery turns people into animals and yet good people in order to justify enslaving other people are convinced that they weren't animals, that they weren't people and they were animals in the first place. David questions, who is man that you are mindful to him? And I wonder about that question. This man of war and destruction, this man who's killed more people than you and I can imagine, and by the way, he was looking him in the eye when he did, and he's beginning to wonder about this. I think he truly is, he's beginning to wonder about himself. He looks around and he sees still the blessings that he gets, and he, he sees a disconnect between who he is and how God feels about him. So he wakes up in the middle of the night and he says, who, who am I? Who am I that you pay such good attention to me? What is humanity? What chance do we stand in judgment? What would God have to do with us? We should have been left wandering away from the garden as we tried to get away from him as fast as we possibly could, as we tried to get away from his grace. See, but he became like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful one, faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. See, God knows every bit about you and me and every bit about our history and every bit of how we got here. He knows all of it. He knows every bit of it. He remembers every heartbeat of the billions and billions and billions of lives that died for this cause. And yet he still sends his son to be a faithful high priest. The author is going to start a new theme here and that's the theme that we will go with starting next week. But the high priest was the only human or the only human presence in the tabernacle in the presence of God the whole time that it stood. So what he's saying here is you still have a human. You still have a man. You still have representative. And he still comes into my presence every year. Because he is the radiance and the very representation of God. See, I see it in the fall. They both sin, you know. They hide because they don't know what's coming. They fractured the covenant. They did exactly what God told them not to do. They just fractured it. And immediately we see the reaction. Immediately we see what happened to them. We, we, we see that completely take over. We see the perversion of humanity acted out in, in, in just a few verses. Where are you? Where are you? We were hiding because we're what? Because we're afraid. We were naked and we were afraid. Who told you you were naked? What is it you have done? What is it you have done? And then he immediately says what? It was the woman. See, that's the first Adam. 
This is the humanity that begins to pervert what he was created to be. And in that one act right there, he completely is no longer who he was created to be. See, because the second Adam, the second Adam when asked by, by um, again, this is theologically wrong, but if the second Adam is ever asked, what is it you have done? The second Adam says, you know what? I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. And I don't know what death is quite, but whatever it is, I'll do it in her place. Because what the second Adam would have done for Eve, that the first Adam couldn't even do for the only other person that he was supposed to love, if he couldn't even do it for her, the second Adam not only would be able to do it for her, but the second Adam does it for every one of us. All die in her place. All die in their place. And since he is the son of man and the son of God, he frees us from that curse forever. Completely wiped out, completely forgotten. The fact that Adam tried to blame Eve, tried to look good in front of God, tried to throw her under the bus, completely covered, completely taken care of by the son of man's atonement. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And when he made purification for sins, he took his place, his rightful place, and sat down at the right hand of the glory of God. So, fellow Hebrews, let's walk our walk this week. Amen? Thank you for holding on there.